Welcome to episode 267 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. Our special guest this week is design strategist, Ben Sauer. Ben, welcome to the show. Hello. Um, yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Sure. For our topic this week, we're going to take a look at secret design skills. Ben, could you give us a short intro on, on the, the thesis behind secret design skills? Yeah, sure. So um, I, um, for a long time um, in my career, have been having these conversations at conferences or with colleagues which led me to a realization or a hypothesis that many of us designers, we usually bring something to design that we learned elsewhere, either from our education or our previous professions. Many of us who were uh, a bit older, <laughs> like me, <laughs> when UX, for example, wasn't a thing when we started our adult lives, or it was in its very early stages. And I realized that some of these skills are actually really critical to who we are as designers. And because they're not talked about as design skills, I wanted to start exploring the idea that these skills should be discussed and gathered. And that is why I am writing a book about it. That's awesome. I love this thesis. I think it's spot on. And actually, I, I relate very much to the sort of evolutionary career path that you described there, Ben. So... As you're thinking about secret design skills, you know, what are some of the observations that you've made? What are some of the uh, in-field uh, realizations that came to you? And, and how did secret design skills manifest in what you've seen in your career? Sure. So I um, have a very mixed background. I'm from uh, South London in the UK, and I did a lot of theater and literature at school. And I became a developer for a few years and then I realized I was no good at writing code. So I went into the thing that interested me, which was design or usability as it was known back then. And over time I started to realize that I had a natural ability to present and to tell stories. And then it was only after a while that I realized where that came from. And in fact, I wrote a tribute to my drama teacher just before he retired not so long ago, because I realized that, you know, as a designer, sometimes in your career, you have to be able to stand up and tell a story about a piece of work that you've been working on. And the design is going to sink or swim based on how you're able to present that idea. So you could be a much better designer than me and you could have worked on it for an entire year. But if you can't kind of get up and tell that story in a compelling way, well, then maybe the idea sinks. And so it's an example of where I had these skills that would have been incredibly important to my career as a designer, but I didn't even realize what they were or, or where they came from until I'd been doing it for a while. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's this um, focus of late that I've seen on what I'd call the production skills of user experience of UX. So the things that 
bring a piece of software closer to production, whether they be, you know, uh, creating the workflow or screen layouts or pattern libraries. So very tactical. And even when there are strategic elements overlaid on top of this, they're not really the same kind of broad exposure that I think maybe call it the the V01 UX designers in you know the late 90s brought to the table. And seeing that lack of broad exposure, I mean, to me, I... <laughs> I really value those skills that come from other fields. So I guess my question to you, Ben, is does it alarm you that user experience seems to be getting more specialized and honed and tactical in some ways? It hasn't alarmed me, but what I think I can relate to in what you said is the idea that somebody is going to go straight into a career in design without exposure to anything else. And when I talk about the concepts of the book to younger designers, I get a very strong sense that there are deeper things they want to explore and learn about in design that jumping straight into UX from college is not going to give you. And that's why I think there is some value in bringing these ideas together and and in the book. So I read your intro manifesto, which I enjoyed and I, I think is a, you know, sort of good sort of initial intro to this book idea. And you talk a little bit about, you have a story in there about Ghostbusters that, that I was hoping you'd share <laughs> <laughs> just because it's, it's funny. Could you, could you t- tell us, uh, uh, and it relates back to your secret design skills. So, so I thought it was yeah, fair, fair sure. game. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I knew you were going to make me do this. Um, so I started to think about, you know, the idea of performance and storytelling and what was my earliest memory about that and you know why why did I go down that path and it was actually in a small primary school in South London the music teacher would let us just kind of make up shows I must have been I don't know seven eight or nine I'm not exactly sure and then we would kind of make up stories and and go and perform them in front of you know half of the school and my one of my most enduring memories is that I was actually more interested in the music at the time. And I was obsessed with the Ghostbusters soundtrack because I had it on cassette. And I can remember just sticking it on and, and kind of dancing around in front of the school. And I probably didn't care anything about the story. I just was being highly uh, externally validated in that moment by dancing to uh, Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters theme in front of my school. And that, that is my earliest performance memory. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. Yeah, I can relate. The uh, Ghostbusters was a big movie for me as well. Dirk, I wonder, you've had exposure to a lot of different fields. Um, in particular, I'm thinking about all your work in uh, designing board games and game design. I mean, you've done that for years and years and have had you know, a lot of success doing that. And I think have created some really wonderful games that listeners can check out at Artana Games. What is that? Artana.com, I think. Um, Dirk, could you tell me uh, or tell us a little bit about how game design maybe influences you in the world of UX and software design? if you wouldn't mind. Sure. You know, I mean, I haven't done a lot of UX and software design since I started doing game design, right? So the the reflective parts of that are less applied, but I've learned a lot in game design. It's such a different field than, than UX and, and software design. And some of the lessons from game design, uh, first, 
The one that has been sort of most profound for me is sort of an axiom that I call um, the friction is the game. So in UX, uh, particularly 10 plus years ago when I was practicing and typically also in sort of consumer context where you have users who are impatient and looking to get what they want, like friction is just a really bad thing. You wanted to just remove all friction at all costs. And I developed that as a design bias of my own in that process. And what I learned as I went into game design is it didn't serve me well because I would go into the game and I would strip away all the things that made it a game, basically, um, in, <laughs> in servants of, of, of elegance and efficiency and, and these other things. And, and so what I've learned about game design is that I need to build in friction. I need to build in things that are superficially boring so that other things in the game can be exciting in contrast to the slowness and the boredom. You know, there need to be normal points and then high points because if they're all high points, then if everything's important, nothing's important, right? Uh, so for me, the most profound lesson that I've taken as a designer from game design is that notion of the friction is the game. And related to that, friction is not always bad. And you need to look at the context. You need to look at what is being crafted to determine you know, sort of what that narrative and what that story is. That's really interesting. I would think there's especially, you know, I, I hate to use the gamification buzzword, but I imagine that there's lots of different kinds of overlap between the creation of the game mechanics and uh, games in general and the way experiences are designed, you know, whether they're software or services. Yeah, something that's a really interesting coming out of game design is the relationship of game design as a field to psychology and the fact that in game design, they're much more actively and productively using human behavior and human wiring to inform what is being created. You know, I think of people like um, Amy Jo Kim and Nicole Lazaro are two of the many who come quickly to the top of my mind of people who are really deep into that and influencing the field. And it's something that actually frustrated me when I was in UX and, and software design. I mean, going back to the early 2000s, when I gave talks, I talked about the importance of that and that we had the ability to, you know, more intentionally design. Manipulate is the wrong word. You know, there's a negative connotation there. But to certainly um, orient ourselves into how and why people behave the way that they do. And still to this day, I think in the software UX field, that that's not being done either much from an applied perspective, but also from sort of a scholarly thought leadership perspective. I think it's many years behind where game design is. There's some cool stuff happening there. Yeah, that's pretty compelling. I mean, the elements of psychology are becoming, especially when you're thinking about behavior change, right? And things like digital health, which sort of take into account that area, um, those elements are particularly important. And manipulation can be, especially if it's a behavior that you want to stamp out, um, that can be a, a positive thing as well. So I think uh, at, at this point, maybe I'll share a little bit about my background as a writer coming into 
the field of user experience. And I've noticed of late that writing as a design skill has become celebrated at least a little bit. I know that John Maida mentioned uh, in his design and tech report that writing was was a key skill for designers. And it may be self-evident, but for me, language and the construction of you know how you put together a piece is really quite relatable to the work that I may be doing as a user experience designer. For instance, I mean, the uh, a lot of the information architecture exercises are, you know, whether you're doing affinity grouping or sorting through items are, are really language exercises at their core. And then, uh, you know, understanding how people think about language and labels and things like that. Additionally, there is some value as well for being able to put together convincing argument. Ben, you talked about being able to present. I think I can do a good job with a proposal because I can write about why a design might be important. It's not quite as compelling maybe as an in-person argument, but um, the writing skills I've found over time have really supported me in my work in the design field. And I'm heartened by the fact that there is more attention being paid to that now. In fact, I would almost, it would be my recommendation that younger designers take a writing class or an editing class or something like that. Dirk, you're a writer as well. I assume you've experienced some of the same things that I have in that capacity. Is that true? Definitely. Yeah. And I think, Ben, you're, you're a writer as well. Um, for sure. I, you know, I, my undergraduate work was in English and my graduate work was in popular culture, which at the time, in my quick explanation of popular culture was it's like English, but instead of reading Shakespeare, we watch Seinfeld. So <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm very, very well educated in, in writing too. And it's a natural tool for me. And for sure, I mean, getting into design as someone with a liberal arts background, writing was sort of a key cornerstone for me. And also in a lot of the the other people who, you know, I've met who were from sort of the early days of UX, I think it's a lot of a lot of liberal arts and a lot of writing. You know, Ben, when, when we're talking about these secret design skills, is how do you view them sort of in the bigger picture? Is it sort of, you know, each of us as designers have this sort of unique and interesting take and anecdote that is our secret design skill or are the secret design skills in some sort of systemic way across all of us communicating something bigger about design or what is sort of your meta narrative around secret design skills so the book that i'm working on is kind of currently in its hypothesis stage <laughs> so sure. um the work that i'm doing at the moment is to interview lots of designers to try to discover what the meta narrative is and what are the ones that are the most common and the most valuable to bring those to other designers but to answer your question i think the meta narrative has to do with something that they do try to teach at art schools and design schools, which is like an ability to interrogate a subject in a deeper, dare I say, more intellectual fashion, right? Because that's the thing I share with you, Dirk, right? I, I did an English degree at a university in the UK, and I have a natural ability to interrogate and sense the subtext or the themes or the meta narrative of a thing. And when I read, you know, medium articles or I look at the screen obsessed outputs that seem to be happening in digital design, I sort of worry that that, that deeper interrogation or the tools 
to help people do that deeper interrogation are, are being missed or, or people are going too quickly into a career and, and, mm. and missing out some of that stuff, whether it be how to tell a story, how to frame it through performance, how to improvise or, or how to uh, critique a subject so that you find you know, something deeper in it, which is what you're mainly taught to do in literature. And I think on that note, part of my hypothesis about the book is to it's to take some pretty fuzzy concepts that I've discovered with other designers. But then if you're at a stage in your career where you you're sort of, you know, you're past going back to university, for example, you know, is to try to make some of those secret design skills highly accessible and practical. Like how would you apply the thinking, you know, the critical thinking that you would apply to literature to a subject matter you're designing, you know, let's say ordering a coffee, right? Like something as something as mundane as that. How would you apply the kind of deeper thinking that I'm thinking about to something like that that you might be asked to design? That's cool. And you mentioned that you're, you're just sort of sorting out the thesis as you're doing these interviews. So I apologize if I'm jumping the gun with some of these questions, but what is the distinction or are you drawing a distinction between skills that are sort of trained and learned versus things that I don't even know if skills is the right word, but are more inherent. Um, you know, I didn't think of this as a secret design skill, but when I think what, you know, it, to whatever degree I'm a good designer, you know, what what is my best or most important thing for that? And I think it's, for me, it's that I am sort of biologically wired to deep dive on everything and anything. When I when I get a problem, I just, I consume it voraciously and I I, I hit it very hard and I'm also good at sort of seeing the bigger system that it relates to, which can lead me to quickly get to good solutions, not necessarily the best one, but good ones that sort of accelerate the process. Is So there's a couple questions in there. I mean, is that sort of thing a secret design skill, which is more of just biological wiring um, and or, you know, what? yeah, I don't know. I'm just I'm so interested in the concept. I'm trying to. Well, I can. I can tell you um, a little bit about some of the things I've been exploring, and I'm remaining open-minded on your particular question around um, innate skills versus uh, trained. I think that all of us have these innate biases that we, things that we love to do and things that we love to move towards. And I think that I would like to take some of those things which are um, actually biological in nature, I'll talk about one in a moment, and kind of make them highly practical and relatable. So one of the ones I've discovered recently is dyslexia. Um, so we don't frame dyslexia as any kind of skill in society, but when you start understanding how it changes perception, it's actually a really, really useful lens as a designer. And I'll give you an example. Dyslexia causes people to misinterpret things. Um, so if they hear a word or a concept or if they read a word or a concept and then what the compensating factor that goes on for a lot of dyslexics is they will try to kind of iterate and kind of find you know three or four other interpretations to find out what somebody really meant and the example i was given by a dyslexic designer the other day was they went to a presentation where somebody was talking about the concept of physical presence so you know i am physically present uh, for someone and they were talking about you know mobile use or something right like where are you in the world and this person misheard it as presence like as in christmas presence oh <laughs> and, interesting and his brain went off on this whole meta creative journey around 
well, what does it mean to give presence as a present? <laughs> you know, and so this beautifully innate creative skill falls out of dyslexia, which of course is treated in schools as though, well, you're just a dreamer. You know, you're just uh, slow. And hearing these stories is is kind of heart wrenching because you realise that society has missed a deep trick around how we could generate ideas, you know, or to see things through different eyes. And I've actually found some exercises which help designers do that. In fact, Chris Nassel, who who we were with on Dirk and I were on a retreat within Norway, actually teaches some of these ideas, like how you can very quickly take a concept and just kind of explode it out into a wide generative space of ideas. So that there's, um, I don't think I've answered your question, but um, I am exploring both innate and learned skills. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I like the, um, you have a phrase in your, a uh, manifesto or or intro statement about learning new ways of thinking that being part of what uh, makes secret design skills important and i couldn't agree more i think that's uh, a great way of putting it and you know for the longest time i mean my other uh, obsession may be similar to yours ben just around music and uh, i've spent an awful lot of time uh, practicing at the piano you know for starting at a young age and so i to sort of wonder about the things that i learned both playing in ensembles and you know solo piano etc how that may or may not affect how I think about designing things, you know, whether it's taking things from music composition or working in jazz trios, like how the human interactions there around improvisation have had an effect on ways of thinking. So I'm really going to be uh, uh, fascinated by what things you dig up, and especially uh, if you're going to be exploring... Uh, secret design skills around the, the liberal arts and, and otherwise. When you're interviewing folks, are you actively looking to talk to more designers right now? Or what stage are you um, at in your research? So I'm pretty early on. I'm very interested in talking to designers, um, particularly if they have ideas about what those skills are at the moment. Although the interviews are a process of kind of exploring what those things are you know there's been moments of self-discovery in the interviews i've been doing so um i'm i'm very interested to hear from designers who who have a story to tell and particularly when it comes to you know kind of practical impact where you can identify moments of like oh wow this is my superpower you know this is my my magical thing that no one else in the room can bring you know i'm really i really love those moments of, of kind of realization um and if people have them then yes by all means i'm open to hearing them Excellent. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show today and, and sharing your thesis on secret design skills. It's been a great pleasure. I'm, I'm really glad to get the idea out there. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everyone, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett, that's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies 
which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at DNemeyer. That's D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. Ben, how about you? Yeah, um, so I am Ben Sauer, S-A-U-E-R on Twitter. um, And I'd love to hear your story. Please get in touch if you have one. Excellent. So that's it for episode 267 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Neumeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time.